Marcos pushing through as we continue to get into our journey of voices with everybody who is on the front lines, entrepreneurs, persons in community, in industry, professionals, youth. It's so critical that we all hold space and all find time to connect, explore, and really just unpack what is going on and what is the change in action that we feel we need to see and that we must be a part of. So stay tuned. you know a couple elements because i want to segue into you know a couple of the, the points that i know you discussed but i want to undermine them before we do that in terms of welcoming i would say your background or kind of you know grounding everyone else in kind of that voice of the conversation of course you're um, of course you're an entrepreneur um somebody who's interested in business you know creating opportunity um and, and using your platform for both advocacy and for tangible I would say action to enable other people to create the wider wealth in, in Canada. That's part of the mission. Obviously, you can read through the LinkedIn and see some other um, part of the part of the profiles. Obviously, you know you are sitting on different elements, and you spoke to um, the different degrees of the committee. So, in terms of the lens on the financial, you know, lens on the agricultural side of things, um, and you speak, you know, constantly and are very, you know, enthusiastic from an energetic perspective, but around entrepreneurship, around disruption, around change, um, and so you know, just even to Ground us in that. Maybe could you give us just maybe a one-two bit uh, part of your background, and then why is it important? These 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 issues and these elements that you chose to focus on over the last X amount of years. You know, just getting into a position doesn't mean you fell into a position. You know, building the companies, you didn't just fall into that. So there is a track record for why. I'm curious a little bit. You know, who are you in that sense? But why do you feel these are issues and that that can lead to change or that are important to center? So I'm a university dropout. I am a unilingual Anglophone. And for me, we lived in Ottawa for a number of years. Getting a job in Ottawa was a tough thing because I was missing a few of the key elements that would provide me with access to a bulk of opportunities in that city. We happened to move down here because I found a business that really inspired me. It was a, a business that, that uh, taught teachers how to teach reading. And you'd think that that is something that they're already learning in, in, uh, in their faculty of education program and they're doing their, their degree. But for the most part, that has not been done. Uh, we have not taught teachers how to teach reading in a science-based method. Um, it's been taught with the view that every child learns how to read differently. But science uh, has proven that long wrong. Um, every child comes at the problem of reading, of learning how to read differently. Um, some just teach themselves how to read and figure it out, but they have a very complicated method that they use in their brain. And their brain is busy lifting words off the page. And so they don't remember what they've read because all their energy was just re spent re-auditorizing the word off the page um, versus that being as easy as listening, which it should be. Um, so we built a company out of Charlottetown PEI um, that in the end had over 200 locations in the United States where it was delivering the program. And uh, it was the most rewarding time of my life because I'd be going into classrooms full of kids who didn't have a whole ton of opportunities. 
and their meal programs. Uh, you know, like just not a lot of opportunities at all. And these were the kindest. I, I'd walk into a classroom and immediately somebody would jump up and go grab me a chair. Like just, you know, just the kindness that you felt. And students who knew this was working, and there's no way they weren't going to pay attention for every second of that class because they knew they had an opportunity that they were not necessarily, well, they hadn't seen it before, and they were not going to count on getting it again. Powerful, powerful stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the achievement gap is a big thing measured in the United States, as you know, uh, between African-American kids and Caucasian kids. And our program, the most successful kids were African-American kids in our program. They, they moved the fastest because they knew this was working and they were not, they were not going to mess with it. And um, it, it was just a powerful moment in my life. I, I, incredibly lucky to have been a part of that. Um, I was CEO for, I think it was about nine years of, the, of growing that company from one little location in Charlottetown and I think 25 students and six employees to, um, we had over 6,000 current students, on, you know, on a cycling through uh, by the time we sold the company. And then I started another company in, in uh, the dentistry field. But it was always trying to, and that was solving another big problem, fillings that don't last. I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of fillings in, and uh, I never really liked getting any of them. And I sure as heck didn't like getting them replaced. And uh, it was just a, it, it, it was a, uh, a program designed to, uh, a, a, a technology that we exported and still going here at Halifax, uh, where we exported skills uh, and knowledge and insights to dentists around the world um, about how to make sure that the, their patients' fillings last as long as they should. Average right now is down to six years for replacement filling. It should be, well, I think I've got one or two fillings in my mouth, the old amalgam kind that are older than me, but uh, they, they should last a long time. So those are businesses that I built because there weren't other opportunities for me at, uh, at that point. And so I, I found things that I felt were helping the world get better and, um, and, and ways to make a good business, do good while you're doing well. And uh, so that, that, uh, that's what has inspired me in my career. Um, and that's, so that's, that's, that's my background. It's, it's one of you know, trying to create jobs because jobs that inspired me were not necessarily evident. And uh, I was lucky enough to be married to somebody and have kids who, who were accepting of this crazy uh, <laughs> direction that I chose that had an impact on all of us. But um, very fortunate in that regard. you know, the economics beside, you know, behind things. For me, I think, you know, and again, whether we're talking about part of the civil right um, conversations now, uh, you know, if we're talking about part of the COVID conversations right now, if we're talking about really, for me, I, I think the highest conversation is always the digital transition. We are in the digital age, so everything has to be through that lens. And that brings it back to it. It is an economic conversation. 
you know, we started this part, you know, uh, of today at least, um, looking at it and talking a little bit about the rural constraints and boundary conditions. You know, in, in a country where there is, and in a province where there is a lot of rural, um, you know, members, uh, whether they are employed or unemployed, the opportunity for entrepreneurs uh, in Canada it, it is very vast. If you look at other nations that have larger numbers, uh, some of them are finding ways to leverage. If you look at Alibaba, that's where some of the largest growth happens. When you're able to leverage or reduce the boundary, reduce the barriers to expand the boundaries of people who are the furthest outside. So when we're looking or having that conversation around, you know, the economics behind kind of what's going on, you know, I think there's a couple of things I would love to hear your insight. In response to COVID, a lot of nations acted in closing the economy or acted in a more closed economic approach. Obviously, there's a balance, you know, you know, globalization has shifted, you know, and, and, and the traditional narratives around economic theories have pushed for. However, it's always been something that I'm very curious about because when you look at it again, that you know, part of the list we were looking at earlier uh, in the week was you know, number of or percentage of millionaires down by the adult populations. And when you look at the top five uh, of that list, five, I believe, Germany. And again, there's there's other sources, so I'm not saying this this is the main one. Um, but you know, just in part of that conversation, Germany has very consistently since World War II been very productive. So on this list particularly. They were five and three. Uh, and so just looking at those elements where certain nations have taken closed economic approaches over sustained periods of time in different industries or through different approaches, now the wider global community is doing that in response to the national security risks. Um, and so there are effects to trade and, and, and but not just from a policy perspective, but from an entrepreneurial perspective or in terms of the community impact. So in terms of that, I would love to just pick your brain a little bit. Like, what are your thoughts as you see kind of that balance of the closed or, you know, kind of open economic approaches or situations? Um, because I think part of it is we are experiencing recessions. I mean, I don't know how much, you know, conversations are, you know, in terms of being that throwing around in the media and misinformation. But, you know, in terms of the bailouts that have already been happening, in terms of the loans that have already been going out to community large, medium, small-sized businesses, that's already happened, and, that, and that's been a trend that follows, you know, or has followed in 2008, um, as well as other, you know, instances before it that were maybe a little bit more uh, more insidious. So, in that nature, you know, what are your thoughts kind of around the situation that we're in? How that impacts us kind of going through this recessionary or transitory kind of phase? You know, um, <laughs> we have a massive global issue, existential issue that is facing some of the poorest uh, economies uh, in ways that uh, is far more uh, dangerous than some of the wealthier economies, and that's climate change. Uh, we can't have a closed approach to anything as far as I'm concerned, because we're all in this together. And, uh, we, you know, I, I love that saying there's no planet B. Um, right, we got to fix this one. We've made a mess of it. Another saying I loved lately that was that um, in this COVID crisis, Mother Nature has sent us to our rooms to think about what we've done. You know, we got to deal with this issue, and um, it, we're not going to deal with it by being uh, insular and looking just inward. 
Um, there are people who keep saying that Canada shouldn't prioritize our climate action because of the fact that we're such a small portion of the problem. And I just always view that as a, just a, a narrow, dangerous response to opportunity. Because if you look at things that way, you miss the opportunity of helping the world to change by selling them solutions, right? The world needs to change. And if we can deliver them high value solutions to climate change, we'll sell it that, rel that are globally competitive. Uh, we'll make money from that. We'll create opportunities from that. We'll create jobs from that. We'll create wealth from that. That's it's those opportunities that we need to make sure are distributed. Now, looking inward throughout our entire economy, and give everybody access to those opportunities. We don't keep them over here in a little, little tight, little <laughs> pocket. I look at problems as the source of opportunities, jobs, and wealth. The biggest problem facing our con our global society, our global economy right now, is climate change. Um, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, former governor of the Bank of England, um, has spoken an awful lot about the fact that companies that are not dealing with climate change will find their enterprise value vanish. That happened last year with Pacific Gas and Electric. The California wildfires bankrupted, basically just took away all the enterprise value of that company. The, the, the litigation and, and, and responsibility that they had to take for those, uh, for that, the climate change conditions put in place uh, a situation where their infrastructure caused those wildfires. And so those black swan events that cause uh, enterprise value to evaporate overnight uh, are things that I think insurance companies and boards of directors are starting to get more and more concerned about and asking their companies to be a little bit more concerned, a lot more concerned about the climate risk that they are facing as an organization. That's an opportunity for Canadian businesses globally. So let's embrace fighting climate change as an economic opportunity, not as an economic cost. That's, that's, you know, so the closed and open perspective, uh, we can't, we can't pretend that there are not going to be migrants from all over the world wanting to come to Canada. I have to look at it that we are in a very open global world, that we cannot control our little world and pretend that we're insular and separate. We have to operate as if we're part of the whole globe because we are. I think even even just the context of rural internet, you know, is also part of the conversation. I believe that we're going to have a little bit, you know, today or to some of those touching points because that's another area where there are extra pressures on a system that has already been experiencing these things. Well, and it's also about access to opportunity, right? We've got to be determined to give everybody in our society access to opportunity. It's it's like saying, no, we don't need to have a road. We don't need to have a bridge. We don't need to have access to electricity. You know, those aren't basics. Um, to deny high-speed internet as being a basic in today's life to accessing any form of opportunity is to deny reality.
I mean, you know, very succinctly put, and I fully agree. What I'm hoping, obviously, you know, I think that whole element right there, the access to opportunity, uh, whether it's with kind of the, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious to call it a movement, but, you know, as we talked about last time, kind of a resurgence of um, the mainstream challenge or voice towards um, equal opportunity, equity, civil rights, and then on top of that, we have the COVID situation, so access to opportunity, access to internet, but as well, kind of above and beyond all those things, it really does distill back down to access to information and knowledge and the ability to act on those things. And, and so in this new space, as we, as Canadians, because um, for me, I feel that, you know, part of this, especially part of these conversations, but I feel, you know, part of this larger conversation is that we have to continually challenge people to zoom out. And so in this new space, it's not just Andreas Robinson or in the black community or in Nova Scotia, you know, it is a Canadian conversation. And then above that, yep. it is American conversation. Above that, it's a world or global citizen conversation. And because the reality is everybody is impacted, whether you are, you know, you're, you're, you're a new recent graduate, you're in junior high, you're in elementary, or you're a CEO and you, you know you have billions of dollars. Everybody's impacted. Some are some are positive, some are negative, but um, the reality is life has shifted and changed for everybody. And it's and it's been happening, layering on. And I'm I'm wondering if um, the the tremendous response, the very the very important response to George Floyd's murder is as a result of the piling on, the layering on of all these different issues. And this, as you well know, is not a new issue. The, the problem is not a new problem. It's, and it's a big problem in Nova Scotia. Uh, it's a big problem in Canada. And anybody who says otherwise is um, not seeing things as they are. And, and uh, But I look at it and say, in January, J.P. Morgan, one of the biggest banks in the world, said they're no longer going to do a new issue uh, of of a stock, a new listing of a stock that has a board of directors that is just all straight white men. That's that's an economic decision. That is not a social justice decision. I don't care which was a motivator, but the the data are really clear. If you don't have a diverse board of directors, if you do not have a diverse workforce, you will be less profitable. It's, it, this is, let's just understand how this has been holding us back as an economy. It's been holding back individuals, communities, and our entire economy. And let's just drag this issue down and, and get it behind us. Let's create that inflection point. And so COVID, I think, is part of it because what a, you know, everybody has been locked in their homes, except for those who, it's, it's really interesting. Those most affected are those who have the least options, right? Uh, they've lost their jobs. They got access to CERB. But um, th those jobs are probably, a lot of them are going to be slower coming back. The, the sort of low-paying um, intermittent jobs, whatever, unless you've got a, if, unless you've got a white collar job as I do, um, it's, it's, you know, you've been deeply affected 
and you're at the wrong end of the of the power basis. I mean, the, the power system. Um, we've got to. We've, we're. I think we're starting to realize that. Finally, we're also starting to realize that that some of our essential workers are actually grocery store checkout clerks. We didn't give grocery store checkout clerks in any way the respect for the importance of their job prior to COVID. Now they're viewed as essential workers. Now they're getting pay increases. I mean, these are, you know, these are tremendous democratizing events. Finally starting to level the playing field a little, a little bit, a little bit. Anyway, I just, it's interesting that it's all happening at the same time. And I, I, it makes me hopeful that we can create an inflection point. No, absolutely. And I think that that's kind of the other element. And, and I, you know, I fully believe exactly as you're saying, because I guess with anything, um, you know, as it boils down, there are no little things because everything does add up. And so in a situation, you know, as COVID, where it's forcing people to be vulnerable, it's forcing people to be uncomfortable, it's forcing them to have a shifted perspective, even if it's only a little bit, and maybe it's not about everything. Um, but to see one thing different also impacts how you see other things and to feel forced out of work or forced away from certain things puts you in a different category because it takes power away. And so when everybody's in a situation of powerlessness to a degree, that changes the environment uh, as well as the narrative that, uh, of what's going on. I think it can in, in, in lots of cases in a really positive way. And I just think we have to just keep ensuring that we're creating those positive shifts. Sometimes it's when people feel vulnerable and they're not used to feeling vulnerable. Um, it's not a nice reaction, right? So uh, I think it's just going to take concerted effort. But it's it's the way you have in our in every conversation we've had. Um, it's it's the way you seem to look at things. Um, you're you're always looking out at that positive point on the horizon, and seeing how things are adding up in a way that is it's taken us there but uh, not everybody is andreas we've learned that but what i will say um what i will say a lot of us are <laughs> <laughs> no many people i think i think everybody does have that opportunity because for me um you know really it really has come through you know this lens over time i mean obviously it comes from having a single mother um, it comes from being raised by kind of the community of my family. Um, you know, it does come from being, you know, what adding up, you know, including both universities. Like I've been to 11 schools or 12 schools, something like that. You know, I've studied internationally as well as on the other side of the country. So all of those lived experiences that are ingrained in transition and, you know, other elements definitely give me that underlying sense. But also I feel, you know, at the end of the day, and obviously, you know, obviously you know, that's what a fitness is all about, but, you know, everybody does have a bit of this potential, um, but that starts with the mindset, that starts with the attitude, that starts with the perspective, because you, you can't do anything over a sustained period if you can't do it in a day. You know, you have to chip away at everything um, bit by bit, and it does add up. And that was something that really left me with kind of a lasting impression was, you know, it was a quote from an NFL coach. Um, but then I remember during my time at Simon Fraser, that was kind of used and reinforces that there are no little things. Everything adds up and everything is impactful. You can take any one element out, you know, of the fabric of, of, of a shirt or, you know, out of a game, you know, was it one play uh, or was it 
the series of plays? How do you really know what the, what the moment was? Was it one person <laughs> or an entire team and an entire series of plays? Right. And then in entrepreneurship, right, it, it is that logical progression because was it really that one decision or that one stakeholder, that one partnership, or was it a series of those things? You know, like the work that I'm doing right now, sure, you know, and, and some people, there's more awareness with things that we're doing, but I've been pushing this same agenda or the same conversation or, you know, the underlying theme over the last 10 years. How it's looked over the last five years is very different. How it's looked over the last one year since graduating university is very different. Um, and, and so it's like, but those small steps, each part along the way, does shape what's going to happen in three years, does shape what's going to happen in eight months. And I think, you know, as we have these conversations always, whether it was for the digital entrepreneurship side, um, you know, or now maybe it's around kind of the economic side or the data and stuff, you know, with COVID, it does kind of come back to, you know, just acting and doing and observing. And, and, and you have to kind of do both in conjunction. And I think it doesn't matter, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you're a student. Um, I definitely am someone who argues that I feel like every single individual is a business. Um, and that's why, you know, for, for myself, you know, when these conversations... Every single person is a business. Absolutely. Because if you look at it from a higher level advocacy perspective, at least for me, um, I think zooming out makes some things easier. It's like, okay, well, if I have a community, so I have four or five people that are just looking at it to scale. And then we can talk about China and India to, 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 as the order of magnitude, you know, highlights. But if I have four or five people that are doing really well, that are successful, have high communication, and they're a team, that community, that ecosystem, is functional they're doing well as individuals so if i put them together i'm going to get a higher level of productivity if i scale that up now we've got a team of five, a team of 10 or 15 or 50 okay scale that up it's no longer a community organization or uh you know a startup now it's a government division right or it's all of the senators that's a very big difference between even the regions and then compare both of those same groups to, to people who are experiencing, whether it's social determinants of health, but they're not able to be productive. And that's over a sustained period of time. The, the, the level of impact is very stark in comparison. And then you look at, so for me, we're in the digital age. If we as Canadians, and this goes back to the, the racial um, kind of element for me, it's, you, you can't say race unless you're talking about racism because it's only ethnicity. It's just the human race, which is one. So then on the big scale, racism means in North America specifically that we as a country or the U.S. as a country is literally not able to maximize X amount of its population. And then the other group also in that bracket is not able to. But then we look at China or these other numbers where you have hundreds of millions of university students. That's a very specific demographic of high performing capital and potential. And then you look at the other order of magnitude where there's, and we were just looking at some stats the other day, but I think it's, you know, about a billion people, you know, give or take, um, uh, just of the adult population. If you look at India, it's about 880 million, just again, about the adult population. So even if their productivity is 70% or 60%, it's a very big and very different conversation in terms of the level of impact that a country can have. And now we're in a space where, other countries have been forward thinking and have their tradition has put them in a better position. And then they're also able to leapfrog. 
over the things we're still trying to fumble through. It's a larger problem that we have. And so I think it is very timely that with COVID, there's also the civil rights conversation because mm-hmm. when you look at it in this new space, everybody's civil rights are at risk. It's a national security risk when you look at and have the, the, the larger perspective. Like you said, national security risk is your agricultural supply chain as much as it's your, your data and security and information uh, of the individual of, of an industry. You know, they all tie back together, and that's not the perspective that we've been having. The health or the care industry, it's not the perspective that we've been having about who are the, who are the most important people in hospitals. You know, or in long-term care facilities, but we just put people there, or we don't leverage the resources. We just allocate them, and that—that's an inefficiency at the highest level. Wow, I like—I don't know what to say, Andreas. If we are accepting a, a good, sizable segment of our society to not fulfill their potential, we are choosing to be a less productive society. And we're especially disenfranchising that one particular group, but it's affecting us all. And for us to think otherwise is craziness. And I hope, I pray that we are getting to the point where there is a much broader realization than that than ever before. But you know that that there's a lot of us that need to learn a lot here. And that's why I'm grateful for our conversations because I learn every time. So it's, uh, um, but we've got to do something uh, to make sure that this is not um, a moment that it's it's truly an inflection point. We we have to do a lot to make sure that that's the case. And uh, so I, you know, I, as part of this conversation and other conversations, I'm I'm looking forward to continuing to get advice and ideas as to help make that happen. But you know, I really like the the um, the basis of how Shopify has grown as a company, because Harley Fickelstein says um, their job is, is you know they're the fastest company in the world to reach a billion dollars in revenue, Canadian company, and their job is to provide entrepreneurs with an e-commerce platform that's really easy to use, regardless of where the entrepreneurs are. And Sub-Saharan Africa is actually where they're seeing some of their fastest growth lately. Interestingly, um, you know, somewhere that you do not in your in your mind initially say that's top of the list of fast economic growth. Um, that's going to change, I believe, firmly when you empower people, um, when you empower their natural entrepreneurship, uh, you see changes that disrupt the status quo and your expectations. Um, but what I love, uh, I often hear Harley, Harley say, we're arming the rebels. They're arming entrepreneurs around the world to disrupt the traditional economy, the power-based economy that is centralized in multinationals. And that to me is so exciting because that's where great productivity will come from, is when we empower every corner of our, our society and our, and, our, and our economy with the ability to disrupt the status quo in a very constructive way. I mean, it's uh, where I feel that we are always aligning is on the optimism that, that is, the, it's always an optimism point, optimistic point on the, on the horizon. I believe the cup is almost always half full, even at a time as troubling as this. Um, 
because this is an opportunity for Canada to not just do one thing and focus on one thing as a political priority, but to deal with climate change, to deal with uh, the marginalization of so many populations within our economy, to turn agriculture into, in my mind, a part of the solution in, in Canada's economy in terms of distributing wealth to many rural areas that we haven't been doing. We've been, used, we've been pushing down the amount of money that you can make in agriculture. People have not been, we've not been attracting young people to agriculture. Uh, we've not been using agriculture as a solution in climate change because if, it, if it's green and it grows, it's sequestering carbon. Sequestering carbon helps us deal with climate change. There's, there are ways that we can, we can use agriculture not just to give us food security, not just to deal with uh, so many communities in our, in our country that don't have access to reliable food, but to be a real economic driver in the country. So it's, I just think this crisis is a, it's a chance for us to really disrupt um, so many of the barriers to dis distributed productivity growth distributed wealth I just just you know just even pause because I fully agree um, and, and and it ties into so many um, of the elements of, of the conversations that we have but at the higher levels you know the things that you know currently are needed to be advocated for because you know as you're talking about agriculture it's a community solution. It's a provincial or municipal solution. It's also a federal solution. But then on top of that, what, what is not just for the food security side of things, it's also jobs. It's also building, as you said, reversing that carbon footprint. It's, you know, and I think, you know, that is the space where we're in. Traditionally, in the West, we focus for, you know, focus on narrow you know, single pointed solutions for single problems. And then we've kind of said, well, we have too many problems. We can't afford all of the solutions, at least not right now. Some of them have to take later. And, you know, now we are absolutely operating and heading into a space much more rapidly, I believe, because of COVID, um, or at least COVID has exposed the need to do a lot of that. And so when you look at it, for me, a lot of things that I'm reading or focusing on is, is or even highlighting the shift away from the traditional industry. That's been a conversation, but now it has fully shown. You have all these different businesses created on the flip, PPE, because it's needed. And the shift in policy and advocacy- It, it could be done. The neat thing is it could be done, right? It just Absolutely. We just didn't do it. Absolutely. And, and so when you look at it, that changes the landscape of competitors. And so, you know, bringing it back to what you were saying about Apple, that was something for what I wanted. When I went to the Social Enterprise World Forum, that blew my mind. Not, not to, like I knew that Africa was innovative. I knew that there was a large population. But to hear two things, the growth rate of Africa, there's already over a billion people there. Um, but even just looking at some of the countries who Nigeria, as one example, is tracking to be larger than the U.S. over the next 10 years or so, give or take. There are 52 other, or again, it's about 52 other nations there, right? The vast majority of the populations in many of those countries are youth. A very big focus is entrepreneurship and technology, and they're jumping and leveraging at a scale that is ridiculous because there is this increased access and reduction of barriers to entry in so many places. Forcing 
us to have to better ourselves because we cannot afford anymore, as you said in our earlier conversation, the time. We cannot afford to be passive in any element anymore. We don't have the luxury. So, but what I love about entrepreneurship is that it's so much easier for government to create the conditions for people to create their own jobs than it is to attract some big company in to have a branch plant in the community based on tax incentives that once those tax incentives disappear, what happens to the jobs? Poof, right? And we've got, it's just a different attitude. We've just lost in Nova Scotia, 10,000 families have lost income in the forestry sector because of the closing of Northern Pulp. Needed to happen. We needed to deal with an environmental racism issue that should never have happened in the first place. Uh, it, it, it shouldn't have ever been the case. We needed that to be dealt with. It was dealt with, but it's why are we dependent on one plant for 75% of the, of the pulpwood consumption? They're using 75% of the pulpwood production in, in the province. Why are we re relying on one specific location for that? Why have we not created a, a broad, diverse industry of innovative businesses that are using wood pulp for tons of different applications? I mean, N95 masks are the most desired uh, <laughs> product in the world. What is it made of? Pulp fiber. You know, like we can now use 3D printing, pulp fiber for 3D printing. We can use it for, for fuel uh into wood pellets and others for fuel there's so many things that we can be doing that we are choosing not to do because we're using this one source or one 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 group one group to buy 75 percent of the pulp in this province and ten thousand families have been affected so it's a just a, it's a shift in thinking that i i think has endless opportunities when we decide to fully embrace the innovation economy the entrepreneurship economy which is what you're all about I fully agree. I think that at any point, and I know personally, I'm definitely grappling with this, with the balance of, of, of the work and being behind the scenes and then doing other elements. Um, however, I think, you know, just as you, you know, articulated, the reality is that when you're removed from something, you're disconnected. And in a lot of ways, traditionally nations or industries or businesses, you know, especially when you look at, as you mentioned, uh, monopolistic situations or um, you know, when you have a few large market players that kind of dictate the actions, um, it hasn't necessarily been from that sense of, well, <laughs> we're connected. It's, this is kind of our share of the pie and everyone else has to deal with theirs. And that's how it is. So when we're looking at that. We're and our share of the pie uh, exists only because we're smart and we worked hard, <laughs> not because of any conditions that were outside of that. Right. Absolutely. And that's the thing that I think is really troubling. But but that notion also you know, speaks to you know very directly. We're in the middle of systems change, and you 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 definitely said disruption at a, at a, at a oh, yeah. high order of magnitude throughout. So when we look at that in terms of that uh, level of disruption or, or that conversation, um, we, we've already talked about health and a little bit about the agricultural side. And, and, and the wider implications in terms of that, you know, but then when we bring into the discussion, you know, education, um, entrepreneurship, technology, you know, fintech, things of, you know, of these other natures, where is 
or what is maybe that concept of value? How does that, how has that shifted? I'm thinking about more from a, you know, the consumer perspective or from um, kind of that social or cultural uh, norms because this event happened and it has changed be- behaviorally consumers, it's changed spending, it's changed kind of the perspective that Canadians are taking, especially when you look at globally it has. But, you know, with somebody in Kuwait, and a few weeks ago, part of that conversation was they did it, there was an index report that was done that 65, uh, there was a 65% reduction on spending. People were spending in it, and it was very specifically on needs. So at the global context, it's happening in other places. In Canada, where um, similar to the States, maybe, there's a high amount of people who are, are living paycheck or, or, or close to paycheck to paycheck with not a lot of savings. So when we look at all this systems change and disruption from a value perspective, whether it's the individual or that community, what is what is the shift that's going on or what is kind of that implication that happens during a time of... So if I was to focus just on value, okay, um, one of the things I find, so dealing with startup entrepreneurs, and I, I, I'm, I'm smiling because I make this, this, is, this, this mistake has been a big part of my life. And I focus on, hey, look what I got. You should buy this, right? And I, and I, and I, uh, I, I, I focus on what I'm selling versus the value I'm delivering, the problem I'm solving that you might have, and uh, what job you want to get done with you know that's a priority in your life or whatever wakes you up at three in the morning you're worried about that i might be able to solve right um that technology out entrepreneur out uh solution out perspective is the basis of most business failure it's the basis of um the the reason i think it's the foundation as to why so much great research so many great research discoveries in this country are not commercialized they're not mobilized in ways for that knowledge to create value on an ongoing basis in our in our economy because somebody says look i've discovered this thing and it's now perfect and they, they polish the apple polish the apple polish the apple and say hey buy it and the person says i hate apples i like oranges like <laughs> i just it's they're just not listening to they're not worrying about finding the person for whom they're they need to create value or they can create value and what they value so value for me is a really important word and we've got to stop selling solutions and start delivering the value that solves problems right that's if we're to make one big shift in our society if we can get that idea through we will commercialize more research discoveries or mobilize more research discoveries out of our universities. We'll have more successful entrepreneurs, right? We'll be doing a way better job in public policy. We understand when a public policy initiative is going through, we will ask, and this is one of the things I found in this new job, which I've been in for almost two years. Um, and it's, it's a big cultural shift. Let me tell you to move from entrepreneurship to being uh, an unelected politician in Ottawa and this and in an institution where the rules have been there for building for 150 years, where I used to be in organizations where if you had a problem in the morning, you could discuss ways to fix it in the afternoon, try out the solution, prototype the solution the next day <laughs> and iterate from there, right? It's, it's a little different. Um, 
But imagine if you had a public policy process that clearly stated the problem you're going to solve, why that problem's important, for whom it's important, and then articulate the legislative and regulatory change you're putting in place. We don't do that. We put forward the policies first. Right? That's here's the and I found myself very often asking the bureaucrats and, and ministers involved. So just clear, clearly articulate again for me the problem you're trying to solve. Because it wasn't always evident. And that's, that, that's I, I'll take ownership of that. I wasn't maybe just understanding. But I think we should not, you know, in public policy, we should be very, very clear. Here's the problem. Do we agree on the problem? Okay. Here's three, four different ways of going at solving that problem. So you step back on that and you start to look at some of the issues facing our society right now. And these are big problems. So the CERB, uh, as an example, was put in place as an interim solution while we were in lockdown. And what was fantastic that I'd never seen in government before is this government was iterating. They were listening carefully. And the next day, the prime minister would announce something different, different, different. And, and they're iterating their policies as they went along. No, this didn't quite work. That group was left out. This, you know, you know, we can't do it that way. We've got to do it this way. That, I'd never seen that before, just as a, as a Canadian watching, observing government over the years. Uh, normally, governments announce their policy and they dig in, right? Say, no, this is perfect. And they, don't, they, they, they push back on, on the changes. So for me, what I found exciting during this period is, is that willingness to iterate. But you look at CERB and you say, wow, this could, there's, a, there's, there's something missing in our society around just providing everybody with a bit of a safety net, right? Uh, where EI isn't there, where welfare is, you know, I, welfare is a system that in my mind has got huge problems. You're controlling people's lives. You're spending a whole lot of time controlling to make sure that they're not abusing the rules versus empowering, right? Putting that base there to empower them to make choices to get on with their lives. So that's why 50 senators, uh, half my colleagues, decided to sign a letter recommending that we look at guaranteed basic income or guaranteed livable income in this country to start to make that shift from this patchwork of, of, of systems to one which really tries, tries to address the issue of poverty and give people the basis from which to start to create opportunities to empower them to get on uh, with choosing opportunities that are uh, of value to them. Um, so that, it, it, what's the problem we're trying to solve, right? What's the value we want to deliver? Um, I think at some point in Canada, poverty should become a priority as this problem we want to solve. Um, I think we'll get there. I think we're getting closer to it through this crisis. Um, I've got some great colleagues that are really pushing that issue far better than I ever could. And I'm just glad to be part of a team that's um, pushing on a lot of really important issues. But it's all around the value you create, not the solution you're trying to deliver. Oh, I, it, it's refreshing to hear, you know, at multiple levels, those elements, you know, and as you're saying it, because I feel Again, that's the new spaces, you know, like, just like as you mentioned, businesses cannot just do business in isolation in the sense that, you know, there is high amounts of data, 
scientific side of things that are speaking to the shift in purchase power as well as purchase decisions or preferences um, by consumers that are under a certain age, this new demographic. And mm-hmm. so and in the increasing numbers are people are spending more of their money in alignment with more socially oriented causes or businesses or organizations, even if it's, oh, this company just donates a little bit to this. Um, that is a shift, and that's part of that kind of cultural element. And so as you're speaking about this wider disruption of the systems to reallocate and redistribute the perspective of value uh, and the approaches that we can take kind of at all the levels, you know, as you're mentioning that as well, kind of the iterative process, um, and, and you've touched on some of these different things, uh, and I'm mindful of time also. Um, but Thanks. In, sort of, in terms of the, the digital and the data, because that's the other part of the conversations. For us to move ahead with anything, um, culturally, we need a lot of data and, and, and things that back. We, and, and we've had this conversation. There's a very ingrained institutional approach that says tried and true um, or theory before action. Uh, and we are... For the most part, for the vast majority of individuals, not our, you know, not taking or the resting stance is not an entrepreneurial stance. The perspective is not. So it's not a we're going to go and we're going to iterate as we go through this. Um, action and theory are one and the same. Of course, I mentioned before that's a little bit more of maybe if I would say an Afrocentric approach um, in terms of the traditional side of things. So when we regrounded in in a time in the landscape of COVID, and as you said at the political level. Um, as well as at the industry level, approaches and, and, and teams, whether it's at boards, at the higher level, or just executive teams, people are changing because there's a demand for it, but also because to be truly innovative, you have to continue to drive the envelope, set the bar, which means in other spaces, in ways that other people are not seeing to, to be coming back to your, your bottom line or your dollar. Um, as we look at that, again, the conversation for data and digital are so critical. Um, so in terms of that part, because you, you already mentioned, government has to be a leader, and that's one. But industry and academia and entrepreneurship and businesses also have to be leaders in these spaces and communities. So what is the role of each of these different uh, groups, if it's in terms of a you know, social enterprise that's kind of given, you know, affecting a problem, affecting change, creating value, impact? Okay. But what about government? What about communities or individuals? So in, in the space of data, or big data and and big digital in the sense that everybody needs to have more access to getting online. Not everybody has the literacy to do that or the, uh, the tools specifically to go about, you know, doing that, you know, what is the role of of communication? What is the role of transparency? Uh, What is the role of accountability? What's the role of data in this new space? In terms of um, the role of uh, communication, transparency, data, accountability, and what uh, government and others can be doing in that regard to make sure that uh, we're taking advantage of, uh, of changes that need to happen at this time. So f- for me, um, data brings, that is key to transparency. You've got to uh, be able to make relative and absolute measurements in order to know whether or not you're making progress and you know whether or not investments are, are de- delivering a return, people are doing their jobs, uh, regardless uh, of of the area that um, you're getting value for money and what you purchase from corporations, so data is key. 
but uh, you know we're gathering a lot of data today, but we're not doing it in a way that is really managing um, or or valuing uh, the va the data from an individual perspective. Um, data is being traded by individuals uh, for services. So either you pay for a service or you pay with with cash, you pay for your service or you pay with your data is sort of the way we look at it today. I think we've got to change that uh, with up upcoming privacy legislation changes to allow people to invest their data as they see fit, to know what organizations know about them. Uh, so that there's a, a data portability that you should be able to move your data from one organization to another. Uh, that's key. Um, there is transparency, knowing what an organization knows about you and you having control over that, not them. Uh, there's, there's a whole opportunity in that regard as we move forward. And that's what I'm really focused on is, is making sure that we can start to, as a society, unlock the value of data at an individual level and then use those data collectively, at a, you know, in aggregating in some way, shape or form in a way to deliver tremendous value at a, at a national level. And that, be that in government, be that in business and whatever form. So that's, that, for me, that's a key element moving forward. So when will things get back to normal? Um, people talk about a new normal. I have to believe that, that this is, the COVID crisis has been a traumatic crisis for Canadians. It's had a massive uh, emotional, uh, mental health, uh, physical health, economic health effect on individuals and communities and our, our whole economy, our whole country. So I don't know that normal is something that we're going to see very soon, certainly not till a vaccine is universally effective and we eradicate COVID. Um, there are going to be changes in behavior that are going to be lasting. Uh, I see it in myself when my wife and I watch a, a movie and you're looking at uh, people in large groups, hugging, whatever else, and it's sort of like you have a reaction. Um, and it's, you know, what used to be normal has an emotional response now because we know we're not allowed to do that. Um, so it, there is going to be a change uh, in our economy. I think we've accelerated the digitization of our economy at an incredible pace in a very short period of time. That's going to have a massive impact on lots and lots of businesses. Uh, how is our tourism, our hospitality businesses, going? when are they going to recover? It's going to be a very tough road uh, for them. So, you know, there's going to be an interim normal and a new normal. Uh, right now, uh, what I'm most focused on is how do we get this economy moving again? Because with people feeling safe, um, that, that's, that's just crucial. And uh, we, we can't manage this, uh, this ongoing period of, of, um, of, of, of risk without being very uh, careful in making sure that we don't allow a second wave to have the same effects that the first wave had. In terms of what I want to see come of, of, uh, of this whole crisis, there's, another, there's a long-standing saying that, that don't let a good crisis go to waste. And that has to be true here. We have finally reversed our carbon emissions. Let's start to figure out how to truly change behavior 
and practices and, and policies in a way that continues that road so that at least we're dealing with that existential crisis to humanity. Let's, let's make sure that we understand how achievable it is for us to make significant changes that have us reducing our overall carbon output in a way that begins to remove that risk of, of uh, uh, irreversible uh, climate changes as a result of our carbon emissions. Number one, I'd love to see that. Number two, I think we've got to look at how Canada is going to be a leader in the move in, in, in digital transformation, digital economy, not a laggard. And we need to see that in terms of changes in how we bank um, so that our big banks, which are not globally competitive, uh, start to become more digital and globally competitive, that they, that, um, they open up uh, the marketplace to financial technology companies uh, that uh, allow greater productivity growth in our economy, uh, banking services to be delivered to the underbanked and unbanked Canadians, the groups of Canadians in, in various communities. Uh, we absolutely have to use this crisis to accelerate the digitization of our economy. Digital government holds so much promise in terms of opening up accessibility. We've gone over the reason why we're now I'm now recording this last question or two is because uh, rural internet is incredibly unreliable. Well, internet it now is like roads, it's like electricity. Uh, it's 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 a basic requirement of functioning in life. So that's what I'd like to see is let's not let this good crisis go to waste and uh, let's make sure we use it to create some sustained changes in our economy. Uh, last thing I'd like to say is thanks to you, Andreas, for all you do to try and uh, create a path to opportunity for people that they can see what they can do to create opportunities in their lives. And you give them the skills and the, uh, the focus and the discipline necessary to identify realistic and achievable opportunities, stretch goals that allow them to um, feel more in control of their lives and feel more empowered to create uh, chances for them to get ahead and for their families to get ahead. And you work really hard at it. Uh, you, you're really creative and determined in that regard, and, and we need more like you. Thanks very much, Andreas. Mm -hmm.